many cases, leaders have been molasses slow in changing their mindsets and adapting to major shifts in workforce demographics. I am delighted that we are in Geneva in person, and I'm going to have our three guests introduce themselves. Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Nadia Yunus. I am here on behalf of the Global Center for Inclusion, but I've been working as a Chief Diversity Officer for many years. Thank you for having me as well. My name is Louise Carvalho. I'm a Canadian Brit living in France, working in Geneva at CERN. That's the International Organization for Nuclear Research, specializing in particle physics. My own professional hats are twofold. I'm a legal advisor at CERN, and I'm the Diversity and Inclusion Program Leader. Thank you for having me also. My name is Gamil Yafai, and I'm a Diversity and Inclusion Strategist and I've been involved in 36 research projects exploring the perceptions of minority groups towards employers and the reality of working for those employers from a minority perspective. This promises to be a very insightful conversation. So let's start with the first question. Has society's overall obsession with youth undermined the potential strength and capacity of a multi-generational workplace? One of the things that I've seen when I've done heat maps and most people that do diversity and inclusion are aware of looking inside their organizations for the demographics. So when I say heat map, doing a heat map of generations, many organizations are focused on millennials and the next generation coming up. But if they look at the entire generational span of their workforce, there are soon to be five generations and often Gen X and boomers. Now, I'm going to stop because those terms, everyone doesn't fit in those terms and they're messy, right? I don't mm -hmm. love these clear delineations between generations. They're a bit false, mm -hmm. but for the sake of looking at your organization, there are many workers that are kind of put out to pasture after the age of around 50, 45, 50. Which is crazy because many of them will live to be into their 90s. Absolutely. And the world's changing, right? Mm -hmm. The pension schemes aren't there anymore. The 401k plan, people are working longer, living longer. So on the younger end of the spectrum, often younger workers aren't given the chance early enough, mm -hmm. but older workers are often not developed. So where is leadership in your organization? If you're going to reimagine leadership, it is at every life stage and every cycle. So you should be investing in the development and the knowledge transfer between and across the generations to get the full force of your workforce. And over 900,000 workers in the U.S., according to some recent statistics, have been laid off due to COVID. And 90% of those were involuntary. So what does that mean for the state of leadership and mm -hmm. knowledge transfer in an organization? We are seeing earlier retirements, younger people coming up quicker and not always prepared. Yes. I wonder in our folklore and in our movies, we have the wizard, seems to be generally a man. But that character in the, the hat, those characters, how do we bring that wise, sage character into our workplaces. Can I take that? Almost every wizard, every magician mm -hmm. are always male. And they're the older male, more often than not, mm -hmm. with the apprentice beneath them. For me, just looking at what Nadia was just saying, employers are missing out on the synergy that's created when you bring together that diversity across different demographics, across different disabilities, abilities, across different ages and generations. And that's what we talk about when we talk about diversity. It's not just about the different groups. It's about the cognitive diversity, that diversity of creativity, innovation, and thinking. 
that comes about when we share knowledge, when we collaborate, not just when we bring one individual into an organization that may be of a younger age mm -hmm. and think, right, they're going to change the whole organization. And a lot of that comes into the culture of an organization and how that culture has grown or nurtured over time with a certain demographic being key to that culture. I want to add into that, into the mix of the vocabulary that we're using to emphasize the importance of intersectionality. And I think, Gamiel, you were touching on that there, where your question is about age, but you might have an older workforce employee who's also female or visible minority who may represent a number of what we call diversity dimensions. And I think that's the beauty of the inclusive culture that we as experts in the field like to focus on. At CERN, I think it depends on your industry. You know, when you think physicist, what comes to mind? When you think scientist, what comes to mind? Probably somebody older and probably somebody male. I must say, of my own experience at CERN itself, what I love about working there is this incredibly consensus-driven and collaborative culture. So while it surprisingly might take you by surprise to think how long it takes us to get policy shifts or scientific developments through to approval, it's because there's a huge line of consensus-driven input that makes the innovation at the end most valuable. And it's gone through ages. It's gone through nationalities. It's gone through geographic locations. I mean, CERN built the World Wide Web on its premises, right? So the idea of international collaboration is really at the heart of it as an organization, which I think makes it stand apart a little bit in the way we value those dimensions. It makes sense, right? Because if we're not tapping the collective intelligence of what's available to us, then how are we? So many CEOs and leaders are saying diversity is not just the right thing to do. It's, it's good for business, but they don't ever actually show you how it's good for business. And that example around building the World Wide Web or other examples in industries where they come up with new products, new services, new solutions. I think this is key to the tapping the collective intelligence. To your point, we read this, but being able to point to, here's an example of someone who does it. What does it look like? What does it feel like? If I were to walk into your office, what does it feel like when people are collaborating? Because my guess is you, you feel it in your body differently. You're pointing to me at CERN, how does it feel like? Well, I can tell you that from the point of view of two young students who, whose table I crashed at lunch two days ago, just to say, because I had nowhere else to sit and they looked like they'd be open to it. <laughs> and I asked them your question, what does it feel like to be in this organization for two weeks? And they're at the age of 17, 18, the last year of their schooling. And one said that they were surprised at what they perceived to be a gender balance among the personnel. Now, when they say personnel, they mean the people they see sitting in the cafeteria where I met them, of course, but also in the scientific laboratories where they are working. And in fact, I think they found the energy in the cafeteria where a lot of the scientific development has actually taken place. Because at the table next to us, there was the group of theoretical physicists who are having their daily lunch together, where they say they actually learn more in that one hour at lunch than they do in the morning working on their own. So there is this constant feeding of an exchange of knowledge, not only at the scientific level, I work in law, as well as ever seen inclusion. And us too have these conversations that take place outside the confines of our office and in the public forum in the sunshine, if we can, where these ideas across names and cultures and backgrounds are actually so, so rich in the final result. It's a good energy. I want to come and work with you. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> You're welcome. No, it sounds like a really interesting place. And again, until going into it and till experiencing 
it myself, I will never really know because, again, you have your perspective in terms of how you experience the organisation and the conversations that you have with individuals who are different to yourself. And working for the last 21 years across hundreds and hundreds of different organisations, I have experienced very few that have that culture where most of the canteens or dining areas or even coffee rooms, normally you get people who are similar to themselves sitting together. And again, you're not going to get that, I call it cross-pollination, you're not going to get that mixture and that sharing when you have that division. And I find that even till today, we're still experiencing similar things, whether it's gender, disability, ethnicity, LGBT, people tend to congregate to the groups that they feel most comfortable with. And that is a huge challenge for leaders because over my last 21 years, they still haven't recognized. We started our research back in 2002. And if I was to look at a research project that I'm doing now, I would say more than 90% of the issues and challenges that individuals from those different diverse groups, and again, not just ethnic diversity, but disability, LGBTQ, political, you know, 90% of the challenges still exist today that existed in 2002. I believe the tectonic plates in this conversation are shifting and they need to shift. They've actually needed to shift for decades but COVID has forced the workforce to come together in a different way. And that's going to require leaders to lead differently and to come from different parts in the organization. Typically, leadership development programs or leadership is thought of as the top of the house, whatever organization you're in. And there's sales leaders, service leaders, team leaders. There's leaders at all levels of the organization. And working remotely, where it isn't for everyone, it is here to stay. The hybrid office now that everyone's talking about, to me, sounds like a truce that management is making with workers who for decades have wanted more flexibility that they have been extremely reluctant to give them. Many people go to university or they go to school. They choose their classes. They're self-managed. They have to get their degree. They have to pass at a certain level. They pick their courses. If they don't show up or show up to class, then they come into this workforce where it's almost like they have to ask for a bathroom pass. And so that model needs to shift a bit. And COVID, I think, has really shifted it to people being able to be on virtual calls with people from all over the world that normally they would never have been able to be in a call with, right? You can open up your meetings, open up your discussions. But I think that's happened a bit by accident because of COVID. Moving forward, leaders will need to be very intentional about how they pull people in and offer different opportunities for leadership of thought, of action, of projects, so that it's not the same top-down, because I said so, leadership model. We are seeing the mass resignation that people are talking about, and people are, from every life cycle, are saying, do I want this? Do I want this model where I'm basically beholden to an organization and I don't have any balance? So people are really questioning. I think the leaders in organizations that go beyond the truce of hybrid and really start listening to their employees about what are some options? What are some real options that might offer greater flexibility? May I, may I just add to that? Even though there's been lots of positives from, you know, obviously lots of devastation from COVID and there have been, we've, we've seen lots of positives as well in terms of flexibility, accessibility, 
And then we had Black Lives Matters focused employers on structural, institutional, and systemic changes that need to be done in organizations. But all of the research is pointing to the disadvantages that women are actually experiencing due to COVID. Because at the moment, yep, women work. Women have always been known to be doing the housework. And then during COVID, women took on the responsibility of educating their kids. That's a triple whammy. And that has had a huge impact. And you know, in terms of leadership and being those intentional leaders, I don't believe that there is much recognition by leaders of that, but also how to deal with it. Closing that gap that has just massively widened mm -hmm. is going to be a significant challenge if we want to continue to receive the benefit of having a gender balance and the values that go with that. There are systems and structures and policies that some organizations are putting in place to encourage a greater sharing of the load, if you will, in terms of anything from encouraging both parents to take leave, to take parental leave. There are all sorts of schemes in, but there's broader societal changes that need to happen, right, all over the world when we talk about different cultures and things like this. Mainstreaming something as simple as part-time. Another statistic recent was 57 million workers are gig workers in the U.S., right? So more people are wanting to do a little of this, do a little of that. Who says they have to work 50, 60, 70 hours killing themselves in a corporation? Maybe there's a way that part-time could be mainstream or job sharing or flexible work options that could actually help the business be more productive and engage people at every stage of their life cycle. And really, really interesting. I'm going to show my age now. I first started work in 1979 and I worked for an insurance company in Birmingham in the UK. And when I walked in on my first day, they gave me a yellow plastic key and that key was for the flexi time machine. And I could start any time between eight and six and I could accumulate hours. 1979. I was expected to be at my desk at 8 a.m. And if I wasn't, my boss would have left me a note saying, where are you? But have we gone backwards? Because that's quite a few years ago. What I hear that pops up in the conversations between us is this dichotomy between the rise of the individual and the rise of the community-based workforce. And I don't think we have to look too far if you want to focus on age to see that the culture is evolving, and I prefer personally the word evolution to change. Change sounds abrupt, evolution sounds like a flow. So the evolution toward more autonomy, individuality, individual agency has meant that people seek also their individual identity at the workplace. And that then becomes a challenge for leaders to say, how do we create a community of culture when I have a sea of individuals who all want to be made visible for their individual contribution. And that's where I think this hybrid model that we're moving toward that COVID has given us the opportunity to put in place is people now have a chance to bring their home identity to the office and their office identity to the home. We talk about blurring lines as being a challenge, which it is. At the same time, we're being able to mold together the two worlds, that, that, that restlessness that a lot of the younger and, and not so young generation feel is core to their movement in the day. 
to build on that, the idea that there is a continuum and a tension to be balanced between individual and organizational and to acknowledge that that will remain a dynamic tension and the most effective organizations will help individuals and the organization flex as necessary. When I have a mom with Alzheimer's, there have been times that my individual freedom equals taking care of a family member. It's not that I want to go drink and party all night. It's that I have a mom who needs something. If you give a good example, I want to provocatively challenge a bit because even if you wanted to go drink and party all night, so what? I guess. I mean, not, I'm not, as a manager and as a leader, I mean, I don't want to be the judge and jury of why people, yeah. what they want to do with their That's life. Whatever they want to do. They want to learn guitar. They want to travel the world. They have an aging parent. I as well do. But I think leaders and managers have been in the position of deciding what reason matters to them. And I think reason needs to be out of the equation. Organizations, other than obviously an accommodation, if there's a mm-hmm. something that needs a reason. But for the most part, I don't want to know why my employees want to flex. I have a business goal to achieve. I have goals to achieve. I want them to tell me how they can achieve those goals together individually. But businesses are, they have to run their business, right? So good leaders and good organizations rally people around values, business expectations and results, and they let everyone contribute to those. So that's all. I just challenging on the reason because now maybe you want to take off for whatever reason, but it doesn't alleviate the responsibility that you need to help the organization and your team members drive for results. Good point. That was an old habit. So (laughs) thank you for correcting that. Yeah, because as long as people are productive, I do have people who work completely remotely. I haven't seen them in two years. I don't plan to see them in the next two years. And are they delivering? They're amazing. Yeah. I don't need that. It matters. I like them. I appreciate them. But we don't have an arrangement where we need to sit in the same room because it's not helpful. Yeah. Are they delivering? Are they heard? Mm -hmm. Really interesting points there because, again, they may be delivering, but could they be delivering so much more? And that's the big challenge that leaders have is knowing individuals' potential or getting to know the individual. Mm -hmm. And again, a lot of our research and a lot of the work that's coming out of webinars that we're doing now around authenticity and how authentic individuals feel as part of an organization, how much of themselves. And it touches on both your points around some people have this home persona and the work persona, and some people don't like mixing both. And I hear so often, I can't be my authentic self because I need to be professional. The number of times I hear that from managers is incredible. What is professional? You know, what is that limit? Who decides on what does professional mean? I wear a suit and I speak the same language as the senior hierarchy in the organization. Or does professional mean that I recognize everybody as individuals and I support them in the best way to get the most out of them? And I know from the the work that we do is within some organizations, more than 30% of their staff don't believe they can bring 70% to themselves or more to work. That's, you know, imagine that additional 30% in terms of money. Employers are interested in growth, in productivity, in money. If they could get 1% of that 30% more out of their individuals, how much more value is that going to create for an organization? And what of the 30% 
is not coming forward? Is it the individualness of that person? You know, I, I think that would be an interesting question to explore. I can tell you, because we ask the same question, the why question, which follows, uh, we ask the, uh, the percentages and then we ask the why. And it's, again, you know, things like, I don't believe I can be professional at work, or uh, there are barriers that I'm experiencing because of my race, my gender, my disability, my sexual orientation. There are loads of barriers, but also, and a lot of research, particularly in the UK, highlights the fact that most individuals leave an employer, not because they don't like the employer, but because of the relationship between them and their manager or between them and their leader. You know, we can talk about unconscious bias just briefly. I'm not going to go into much detail, but managers still veer towards people who are similar to themselves. And even though so many organizations have had unconscious bias training, it's not the training that doesn't work. It's the sustainability. It's what happens afterwards. Whenever anybody's trained, it's about having the opportunity to put things into action. That's not happening in organisation in, in a lot of organisations. I know both Nigel and Louise work for large organisations, and some organisations are really, really good at it. But the majority of organisations, it isn't even on the radar. And I think most unconscious bias training is useless, quite honestly. And I'm saying that as as someone who's been a chief diversity officer, and most of my peers have pushed some version of unconscious bias training throughout organisations, and. Yeah, I think we need to de-bias systems and processes yeah. along with raising awareness around the biases that we have. But sometimes you can train people in unconscious bias and it will reinforce they're now aware of this bias and they're fine with it. I've actually had people say, yeah, I am. And here's all the reasons why that bias works for me. And I'm thinking, OK, with that just backfired. Um, so, so I think debiasing the processes and the systems. So I'll give an example. I used to work in a large mining and metals organization as their diversity leader. And the assumption in mining and metals was that it was men's work. That is the assumption, right? It's dirty, grimy men's work and women wouldn't be interested in it. And there's a whole slew of reasons why women in mining is absolutely great for the planet and profits of any mining company out there. One of the examples, there was an, a leader in Australia, these mines were in remote places and he was really having a hard time getting miners, getting people to come and work in that location. And there were lots of trailing partners, following partners that came. And so they decided they were going to pilot. They were trying to get greater representation. And this is probably another pet peeve of mine as a DNI person is that a lot of organizations are chasing representation and they're not chasing the impact of that representation, right? So they want to get X percentage of women in leadership, but they don't know why they want that. And so this leader decided that he wanted to get more women in leadership for representation purposes. And he brainstormed with women and men in the organization how to do that. And they piloted part-time shifts, which was unheard of in the mining industry, right? You had to work full-time. They trained women, some women that didn't even know how to drive regular cars. They trained women how to drive these big Tonka trucks, and they let them work part-time. The women were actually very, very successful. They drove the trucks safer, so the safety incidences actually decreased. Because they were working part-time schedules, the women themselves figured out how to do a shift rotation. Previously, when it was all men working and they just had shift changes, the machine stopped for a half hour at a time. Well, the women introduced shift rotations 
and the trucks kept moving. So production in the mine went up by over 10%. So safety stats went down, production went up. I think leaders, when they they go for representation, they need to ask themselves, why is it important and what could you actually get out of the organization if you let the insights of those, that 30% that's left on the table, if you let those insights come into the organization about how might you run it better, how might you do things better, same results happened with the environmental impact of a mining site. When women were involved in the community or in the mines, the environmental impact was much less. So there's uh, lots of studies of this. What would happen if racial and sexual orientation and all the other dimensions of diversity that we think about were brought into the conversation for those perspectives about how to do your business differently or how to attract new customers or develop new services? See, this is really interesting as well. In my time doing what I've been doing, I probably spent 19 of those 21 years trying to convince organizations of the why, why diversity, equity, and inclusion was important. And most of my time would be spent on the why. Over the last two years, particularly with COVID, you know, we've had Brexit as well, Brexit, COVID, and uh, Black Lives Matters. Over the last two years, most of my time is spent on the the what and the how. I, because people understand the why? No. You see, this is the thing. And this is my, my I don't play game, that I hate is people believe they need to understand the why, but they won't admit that they don't. And I, I work across multiple leaders in different organizations. And I have leaders coming up to me and, and saying, yeah, but we don't have a problem. We treat everybody the same. And, and most leaders in organizations, and you know, I talk about an explicit culture and all of the organizations I've worked with, whether it's doing research or anything else, those leaders believe that they are genuinely, genuinely nice people, that they believe in the best way to treat their staff. They have this culture where everything they do, whether it's their websites or their annual reports or documents that they produce, everything's positive. And there's almost this, this impression that everything's really good in my organization. And that's where I get from most leaders. But when you start talking to individuals, particularly those who have been marginalized by society and in the workplace, they experience what we call a, a hidden and shadow culture, which is totally different to that homogenous culture that leaders experience. And those hidden and shadow cultures is the way that they experience the, the culture within their organizations. And they will experience the culture totally differently to that homogenous group. So, and the only way you can get to this is by doing the research, sitting down, having those focus groups, talking to different individuals about the challenges that, that they, or how do they experience the culture? And when you start talking to them about that, they start giving you so much information about one, how they're not allowed to be themselves. They're not asked questions. There's no curiosity from their leaders. You know, they've been brought into the organization with this great willingness to make a huge difference. But as soon as they've sat in front of their manager, 
they're not allowed to do all of those brilliant things that they thought they were going to be allowed to do when they joined the organisation. And part of it is about they feel like they've been held back and they've got so much more to give, but they're not allowed. And what that does is it has an impact on them in terms of their self-limiting beliefs, in terms of their confidence, and they get knocked back. And what you find is they won't go for promotion as much as their white counterparts or male counterparts, and they won't see the opportunities or they won't have the networks that a homogenous group have or have the privileges. And sometimes a privilege can be as simple as a book or a connection to somebody else. You know, it's not a wealth thing. It's a having something that somebody else doesn't have. And that's simple. Nadia talked about the opportunity that women in the mining space brought, not because they were treated the same, but, but they were treated as unique and having different expectations. And so as you talk about leaders thinking it's beneficial to treat everyone the same, and yet it seems like that perpetuates the limitations. We've been talking about equality for years and years and years. And to a lot of organizations, as I ask the question, so what does equality mean? I treated people the same. Well, actually, when you look at the definitions, that's what a lot of the definitions actually say. But when you look at the term equity, equity is about treating people the way that they feel valued, that they need to be treated in order to maximize on their potential and to allow them to be the people that they are. I'm going to ask you to say that again, because so rarely do we have that conversation that treating everyone equal or the same doesn't generate the outcome we're trying to no. generate, equity. The difference between equity, which a lot of employers' leaders use constantly, equality is about treating everybody the same. However, we've had a, a massive shift towards equity. And equity is about treating people the way they need to be treated in order to get the most out of them and to maximize on, on their potential. And I've, I've got a really good example of this from particularly the UK, where so many large employers are giving their staff laptops, you know, so that they can do that hybrid working, they can take their laptop, they can use it in the office, they can use it in, at home. One of the biggest complaints we've seen is the lack of adaptable laptops. So you can show that equality by giving everybody a laptop. However, you're not being equitable because you're not giving people with autism, dyspraxia, dys dyslexia, even colorblindness, the adaptations that they need on those laptops that will help them perform at the same level and on an equal playing field. A lot of organizations are saying, okay, they're bartering the number of days people can work from home versus work in the office. And two to three days at home or two to three days in the office, this is that false truce I talked about earlier. That is, you know, you might be treating everybody equally by saying you can work from home two days a week, but there are people that don't want to, can't. <laughs> there are people where that two days a week isn't actually what they need. They need to flex their morning or their afternoon, or they need a different form of flex. So thank you for the two days for everyone. But that was a one size fits all, and that rarely works. So I think leaders, when we talk about reimagining leadership, leaders really need to be listening out for ideas that go maybe against the natural grain, like those 
odd ideas that seem odd, uh, is there merit to them? And check whether there's merit to them, because I think a lot of times leaders are so used to the assumptions and way things are done that a good leader is actually looking for new ways to approach old problems and new problems in, in this day and age. I want to say that the work environment that we're speaking about to me has so many parallels. If we zoom out for a moment and look at other smaller based community organizations around how we celebrate diversity within the family, right? So the family used to be very hierarchical as well too. And now we see that children are actually telling their parents what's to do rather than parents telling their children. So we have a shift already in who are the leaders in that group. You know, we've had church-based organizations that on the Catholic side are very hierarchical, and then you've got others more new age that are more flat and encourage um, vocal points of view from all levels. I think justice systems, the three of us come from you know, North America and the United Kingdom, you know, which are large multicultural countries, uh, Canada and the US based primarily on waves of immigrants who then had to find their own identity in a new country. And how do you create a national culture. It's the same as how do you create a culture at CERN, which is an international organization. Equally, what does it mean to be American? What does it mean to be Canadian? How do you find the dominant culture? Do we dress people the same so they look like they've assimilated? Or do we allow the multiculturalism model of Canada to let the individualness and language differences actually be appreciated? It's the same at the workplace the same in the family. I love the work of Esther Perel, whose every word I hang on, who will say in her podcasts about work, we bring all that emotional experience and all that life experience into the workplace, which is a fusion, again, of the individual whose vocabulary we now have. We've got words like emotional intelligence that my parents never heard of. My father probably still doesn't really know what that might mean in the context of of work, and rightly so, because those concepts of the individualness were never entered into the conversation as they are now. And that's the social evolution that I find absolutely fascinating, is this dichotomy, marriage, however you want to describe this partnership between the individual struggle for adventure and attention, and yet that need for community, which we no longer have in our extended families, our churches, our local communities that used to be so much people's identity. Now we're really funneling it into one person. So how does CERN do this? As an international organization, how does it create a culture? And do people dress the same? Or do you have all kinds of stuff? And it's as eccentric as you might imagine it to be. I must say, I, I have worked in the United Nations in field mission in Kosovo for 10 years following the conflict there and in that region, and as well too in in the Netherlands at the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, another international organization. So CERN has a way to go. Of course it does. What I was very surprised to learn from our own staff survey a couple of years ago, in addition to the, the numbers that we accumulated following that survey, there was a free text question at the end. What do you like most about working at CERN? And there, the numbers of words that dominated that answer was the most, I wouldn't say motivating for me, the, the word most mentioned was diversity, meaning that's what they liked most about working at CERN. Now, we are a long way from being the fully diverse culture we could be, but it doesn't matter. For me, what matters is that the people think they're working in a diverse culture. It's what picks their pulse up when they enter the gates in the morning. They love working in what they feel is a diverse environment. And if you can create that pulse for an employee, 
that means we have to be, for us, even more diverse. We need more initiatives that make people feel even more engaged because they're in an environment that they feel charged by. That's really, again, really, really interesting. And again, that fits into the homogenous culture of most organizations, which is the positive part. Did you ask the question, what do you like least? Indirect ways, yes. And we've got some good feedback there too, but it was less about the social construct and more about the uncertainty around contract policy, whether they might have certainty there. And I think that's part of what influences the culture as well too. With demographic diversity. Not to the extent that people focused on the positiveness about diversity, indeed. No, really, really good and really interesting. I had a similar experience when I worked at the International Monetary Fund and the surveys there and the people there really enjoyed working. I mean, I would walk in the doors there and say what you will about these international organizations, but there were over 150 different nationalities. And on any given day, it was extremely interesting to be grappling about policies in 189 countries and with people from 150 different nationalities. And there was lots of inherent tension and conflict in that, but also lots of creative ideas that would come out of that work environment. And when I left there and went back into kind of a a big corporate role, the diversity inside a corporation just seemed so little compared to the international organization. And I really missed the sparring nature of bringing all these different cultures together to grapple over things, I think that is a positive thing of many of international organizations is that there is this cross-cultural grappling and not everyone's included at the same level as they should be, of course. It's not on this idyllic world, but there's the opportunity there to bring that diversity in and, and to look at some of the world's most pressing problems together, which is actually fascinating. I love this and what both of you have to me are expressing and talking about is purpose, the purpose of those organizations and and how that brings individuals, not just into an organization, but how they feel valued because it's not about the different values of the organization. It's about the end purpose and what's the end goal. What is it I'm going to achieve and what contributions can I make as an individual to society, which moves away from the large corporates, because from my experience, most managers within an organization will have done the role of the individual that they've recruited. So they've done that role. They have the knowledge. They believe that they've been promoted based on being really good at what they do and they know best. Gamil, I want to add something there just to a little bit provoke also for your audience to reflect on this. We speak about purpose and having a greater purpose that the workplace offers and and how that will get people's energy rolling. But there we have a tendency to make a, a binary gender split between what the women can offer, what the men can offer, why we need more women. And I think the conversation needs to be what are the masculine and feminine traits in each of us that can relate to purpose? It's not only women who are seeking, if you will, the purpose that there's a greater good to what they do. Although we tend to think that if we organize our vacancy notices differently and talk about what CERN as an individual, what you can do for CERN for the greater good will attract more women. Yes, but will attract more people whose feminine traits actually find that to be the most important. And I'd rather the conversation be around the masculine feminine traits within each of us than what can women do, what can men do. When we started 
looking at the leadership characteristics for this new era, one of the things we really grappled with is, are there traits of women leaders and men leaders and how are they different? And I've been fairly adamant that we don't have pink and blue leaders. There's a set of traits for effective leaders. So we did go back to what are the innately feminine archetypal characteristics that men need to have and what are the innately archetypal male characteristics that women need to have because effective leadership looks like this set of qualities like collaboration and 360-degree thinking. And no matter what body you live in, you need to embody those characteristics. And certainly, I will have them differently than my male counterpart, but I don't get to abdicate good thinking because I'm more collaborative. We still need, in each of us, all of that capacity. I once did a scan of performance management, the performance ratings, right? The the write-ups that people mm -hmm. got. And this is where what you're saying, there is no pink and blue leader, but there are, and this is where biases show up. When I looked at those performance management, women leaders who were great leaders getting great results often were attributed as they did that because of their team, because they built a good team, because of whatever. And men who got the same high-level performance rating got it because they were excellent leaders, right? Full stop, right? So I think there aren't pink and blue leaders. There are good leaders. But when we talk about leadership, women and different groups will often get talked about differently. They're not talked about the same way. And so it frames. Leadership needs to be reframed and kind of retooled, redeveloped. So this is the tectonic plates that I mentioned earlier that I think we need to really seriously use this opportunity right now with the world shifting and how we work to also shift how we think about leadership and who we develop to be leaders. Can you say more about that? Because that's something I'm wanting to hear more detail. What does that mean to you? So now I'll, I will date myself a bit as well as you did, Camille, but um, some might remember the old 45 records. Mm -hmm. um, there was an A-side and a B-side. This was a way to get out popular songs. And the A-side was the popular song, right? So as an example, the Beatles put out the A-side, Hey Jude. Everyone knows Hey Jude. Do you know what was on the B-side of that? Revolution. Now, that's another great song by the Beatles, but that was the B-side. They didn't actually think that was going to be a hit. And so they were pushing the popular and I think the same is true with leadership. We've been pushing the A side of leadership for so long that, you know, the A side of leadership is that you're the top of the house leader. The A side of leadership is that you're probably a male or whatever. And we need to start focusing on the B side. Leadership needs to be evidence-based. It needs to be affordable and it needs to be for everyone. We've been developing leaders as these special prince and princesses, if you will, at the top. All If you look at the budgets of leadership development in organization, the massive amount of dollars that is put into, it's a billion-dollar industry, leadership development, and most of it's put into the top 200 people. Organizations really need to rethink and make it evidence-based, develop leaders at all levels. There's team leaders, sales leaders, service leaders, leaders at all levels of the organization from all different backgrounds. That billion-dollar leadership development pie needs to be seriously redistributed. Well, think about what changes when we educate college leaders to lead self. So when they go into the workplace, they don't require the same level of management. You know, as you said earlier when we started, people get through college, they show up to classes, and yet when I went to my job, 
I'd have someone leaving a note on my chair that I wasn't at my desk at 8 a.m. I was managing a team of accountants. They kind of knew what to do when they showed up. So if I had worked till midnight and I arrived at 8.05, we were all fine. Everyone knew what to do, and they did not require me walking around making sure they all turned their computers on. Yeah, more of that, please. Yeah. (laughs) More of that, please. And now that we're all virtual, now because of COVID, I have seen aberrant behavior as well. People leaving their green light on, sending emails at weird times in the evening just to show they're working, right? This virtual presence or physical presence, I think leaders need to think past that and really get to more evidence-based, results-driven. So let me ask, because this was a conversation in the groups yesterday, what age do you start? Do you start at fifth grade, eighth grade, high school, college? Where do you start teaching leadership? I'll leave this also to the colleagues, but I think leadership is starting to be formed on the playgrounds and starting to be formed in the crib. Like the formally teaching leadership, I think you need to give children from a very young age the opportunity to lead. A lot of kids lead. They want to lead. They are leaders. They get that conditioned out of them by a certain age. And I think we just need to encourage more of it. Again, my my favorite, Esther Perel will say this to where where were you when you were brought up in your family? Were you encouraged toward autonomy or toward loyalty and community? Were you taught that you can only rely on yourself so you'll be the one and only? Or were you taught that you will always have a community of people to support you? And that really influences how individuals will behave on the playground, like you say, Nadia, and how they will behave in the workplace and how they will behave if, as leaders if that is how they're identified to be. And I think that, again, wrestling between are we community or individual driven is a very much an early nurture. There's a couple of things I want to add. One of the terms that we haven't used yet is empathy and how leaders need to understand what empathy is. And that is something that is almost nurtured from the day we're born, you know, dependent upon the families that we're born into, the experiences we have as youngsters. And But one thing that, that I find working for organizations is that some of the programs that we run are focused within large civil service in the UK. They have half a million employees. Within that organization, there are certain individuals who haven't moved up the ladder as fast as some of their, let's say, the white male counterparts. And those individuals are actually put on a program, a development program, one to help them lead themselves. So the big focus is on how they lead themselves not sort of giving them everything they need, but getting them to explore what they need to dial up, what they need to dial down on, what they need, the areas that they need to focus on. We run a full year program within the civil service. Over six years, we've had 6,000 individuals going through the program. 3,000 have actually got promoted within their 12 months. 10% have moved sideways and 5% have left the civil service because it's not for them they move on. But I've been talking to the education sector in the UK about why do we need to wait until individuals are in employment to start getting them to think about self-managed learning, the different cultures of different organisations. And we're working on 
college, and I know in the States, college means university, but in the UK, we have colleges and we have universities, which is the next stage. But we've been working with students across colleges and universities to actually start to get them to focus on what it's like to actually work within an organization and how to manage themselves and also to look at the different challenges that they could potentially experience in those organizations. You're smiling. Oh, only because I introduced myself by saying, imagine what a physicist mm -hmm. looks like. And let me just finish by saying to wrap it up on the CERN side that CERN has a director general who is a fabulous renowned physicist who's Italian, who's incredibly detail-oriented, who's funny, who is very well respected in her field, you know, who gives space to the diversity and inclusion program to be what it is at CERN, and who's the only director general ever to be given a second mandate in more of its 60 years of existence, and who happens to be a woman. But this is only a part of who our director general is. Maybe she brings more feminine traits or what we consider female traits to the table, but she has as well masculine traits that she's not shy of, I suppose. You know, what, what has made her to be a leader that everybody wants to rally behind? And I come back to the earlier trait that we must encourage all leaders to express masculine and feminine traits without shame, but with confidence, because that's the diversity that we have within us. So there's a shift to how we imagine scientists to look like and physicists and leaders. And it's a social evolution, not a change as an endpoint. It's a social evolution that we're all a part of. I love the idea of evolution, that there is a place we're going rather than bouncing back and forth. So as we're wrapping up, closing comments. Personally, I believe that leaders need to get to know their people and not just have this one view of what their people look like. And coming back to Louise's point around intersectionality, whether that's focusing on masculine versus feminine or looking at empathy and how they can walk in the shoes of somebody who is different to them. I like the concept of evolution, but I think leadership and leadership development needs a bit of a revolution. So <laughs> I, I'm on the revolution side of leadership development and that. And I think, you know, there is an international community of leaders coming together about this rethinking, changing the mental mindset around leadership and who gets developed and how most leadership models focus on the leader and their personal self-awareness. They don't measure empirically whether their leadership programs are actually helping that leader drive better business results. So bringing those two things together, developing the leader and developing the business at the same time and empirically connecting those, I think, is really important. So I think leadership needs a revolution. There is an online community. I talked about the A side and B side of leadership, and there is actually a series that is free and open to any leader interested in rethinking and revolutionizing leadership called Rejuvi45. And it is an international online community of workshops. Give us the URL so that anyone listening could... Yes. If you look up Rejuvi, R-E-J-U-V-I, and there is a whole series. Uh, it's a leadership community. It's an international leadership community that is looking at how we can revolutionize and make diversity and inclusion, make leaders more inclusive and make leadership development more accessible 
to everybody in an organization and not just the top of the house, right? Beautiful. Thank you all for joining me for our conversation. 